modern INFD and FreeBSD, the Unix Arc V issue, retro computing can be more than games. Uh, we recommend you read section 8 of the Unix user's manual and more in this week's episode of BSD. Ah. Now, episode 444, Historic Developments. Recorded on the 23rd of February 2022. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for truly paranoids. And if you want to support this show, check out our Patreon page for various options how you can support this show. Hello, we are your hosts Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome. This is a... Cool new episode that we put together with the help of our uh, editor JT, of course, as always. And we have headlines that start with, very promising, a conversation with Margot Zeltzer and Mike Olson, the history of Berkeley DB. Yeah, so our good friend Kirk McCusick sat down with Margot and Mike uh, to discuss the history of Berkeley DB and how that came about. Specifically, they won the ACM Software Systems Award in 2021 uh, for their contribution. Uh, so... Kirk sets the setting for the original art uh, for this article that you know back in the day when the computer systems research group was creating BSD, uh, they needed to create a version of Unix that wasn't encumbered by AT&T's ownership rights on the original versions of Unix. Uh, and so while Kirk and Mike Carls were tasked with uh, building the new version of the kernel and so on to have no AT&T code in it, um, they also needed to have all the apps and libraries sanitized as well. Uh, as part of that, Mike Carls was working on that. Or sorry, uh, Keith Bostick took on the task of working on the apps and libraries, and he solicited volunteers uh, to do much of the work. And so you start there, and Margot says, this started with a standard stupid grad student trick. I had taken Mike uh, Stonebreaker's graduate database course at Berkeley, and I thought that Litwin's extensible linear hashing was really cool. So Keith Bostick recognized this student-grad-student syndrome, uh, syndrome and said, hey, how would you like to implement that? I need a replacement for NDBM and DBM and hash search. And uh, of course, she innocently said, sure, I'll do that. Um, so he introduced uh, Margot to Ozan Yigit, uh, who, had been, uh, who had written the GDBM which uh, was specifically uh, an NDBM replacement. And they brainstormed together and figured out a way to have a single hash package that would support both uh, persistent NDBM and regular DBM, as well as the in-memory hSearch replacement. Uh, this became what was known as, cleverly enough, just the hash. Uh, then Keith's ulterior motive kicked in, which was that he really wanted a record package that uh, we could put under a replacement VI because VI was another big piece of user land that needed to be rewritten. He'd had it in his head that he wanted a record manager built in as well. Uh, this required that they come up with an interface that would let him uh, search or access records by the record number. That is, I want you know line 59, and that will return the 59th line of a database, uh, which was his, you know, in his case, it was just a text file. Uh, and so they started working on that. And then Mike Olson, the other person that worked on it, says they were Margot's office mate at the, at that point. They had both taken uh, Stonebreaker's class. And he was working on the Postgres project, where he was responsible for a bunch of storage code, including the B-trees. So he'd already written B-tree implementations two or three times in his life. So when Keith Bostick began pestering him with a project to, you know, write bee trees all over again, uh, he thought it was a bit pointless and didn't really want to do it. But at the time, he was convening a pretty regular Friday afternoon study group uh, for the research team, uh, which was code for, let's go down to the local brew pub and throw some pints back. Uh, and Keith started crashing those uh, study sessions and kept leaning on him to do this. So finally, he agreed he would write the bee tree code. And since uh, Margot had built the hash tool, uh, they would be a team. I also had an ulterior motive. I was going to replace all the B-tree code in Postgres with this new Berkeley DB B-tree code, which was cleaner and better. Uh, sadly, I never got around to doing that work. And I'm sorry about that because I think it would have been an improvement for the Postgres code as well. Mm -hmm. oh, interesting. 
let's see how it all came together right in later projects like the postgres database and uh, so there's a couple of interesting themes here interwoven mm -hmm. and you know that berkeley db is is used all over the place uh in lots of things but even just in the operating system uh like oh, your yeah. password database actually gets compiled down into a Berkeley database so that when libc needs to search for a user, it can do it much faster than having to parse every line in your password file. There's actually this hash-based Berkeley DB file that it can more quickly find the right entry, even if you had, you know, tens of thousands of users on the system. Mm. Yeah, and then a little while later, they, um, they had basically a grad student code in there, in their uh, database that was responsible for the transactional part of it. So, um, and some other code shipping with BSD. And then, so Kirk asks, how did those two threads got woven together? And uh, Mike says, then let me give a little bit of background. Margo and Keith did almost all of the work on the software starting in 1992 and continuing into the late 1990s. Berkeley DB, the DB 1.85 library got shipped all over the planet with Berkeley Unix. It got used in a huge number of projects. And in particular, a group of researchers at the University of Michigan built an LDAP, like Lightweight Directory Access Protocol. We probably have heard that if you're in a corporate environment. Uh, that engine to look up records by key over the network in a really fast way. And that became OpenLDAP. And that's a key part of a lot of authentication systems today. Uh, and they used open, uh, uh, not open, the Berkeley DB, and they did a really good job, except the DB 1.85 code didn't support transactions. Hmm. God forbid, two people should do something at the same time, or your computer should go down in the middle of an update. Oops, the database could be corrupted. So Netscape, the company, wanted a directory server as part of its product line, and it hired the entire University of Michigan team into the company to bring along the code and get the work done. And so since he wasn't around at that time, he'll let Margo continue that. So there's a little bit of a, a part. Uh, ooh, they said, uh, graduate student code. You don't really want to use that for production, right? And then they said, well, that what would it take to make the libtp code, a transactional uh, TP code, um, real? And so they had been talking about building a production quality transactional library for some time. And they knew they were going to, that was going to be a fair amount of work and they had day jobs. So Netscape said, well, you know, we'd pay money for it. So Keith and they, uh, yeah, yeah. So they thought, okay, well, that's novel. Who would have thought of that? And then there was a question of, you know, how to make this uh, into an actual uh, company, an organization. And that's how Sleepy Cat would form. Like uh, you probably heard the name around the, uh, <laughs> the Berkeley DB name. And so key plot hole in the middle of all this, Keith and Margot had gotten married so they owed a house that they wanted to protect, right? If something went wrong, they would be liable and didn't want to lose that. And so um, they always thought it a fantastic Judah move by the two of you. So essentially Netscape provided a seed funding for the company that let them create a business without taking any external investment. That money from Netscape was then the seed money that got the original product built. And it wasn't a work for hire. Keith and Margo still owed the intellectual property rights. And then there's the question of where did the Sleepy Cat name come from? right? So who came up with that name? And they said, we called a lawyer and said, hey, we need to start a company. And the lawyer said, well, you need a name. Fortunately, there was a cat sleeping on Keith's lap when he looked down. So, and that's how it got started. And they had an addition here. We think that this is the same algorithm that was used to name spider plant software, but they looked up instead of down. And then, uh, yeah, there's a little bit about dual licensing, which is also interesting, but I think we can let you uh, read that as our listeners because the article is quite long but nevertheless interesting uh, about the history where some of these software that we're still using today was coming from yeah you know they were adamant that they still wanted this to be open source uh, because people started using it and we weren't going to you know turn our backs on them but you know we spent a ton of time working on it and we wanted it to be uh, something that both be palatable to the business community but also still good for uh, open source. Yeah, so that's a great uh, article on the ACM. All right, next up, we have a modern INET in FreeBSD, and that is a Clara Systems article by our very own uh, Tom Jones, who's taking uh, off today. So that is a nice way of not letting him read this story. And uh, you may recall INET from a while ago, a couple of years it has been, and it has been quiet around INET. 
but the internet super server application, which ties incoming network connections to locally run commands, can still be useful today. And that's what Tom writes about here. So the INETD super server is a special application which uh, does the network uh, connections tying together. And using a single super server to handle all network requests conserves memory and CPU resources at the expense of increased application latency. So although INETD has largely fallen out of fashion, he writes, today, it was the most common method for handling network requests earlier uh, in the earlier days of the internet. Remember, the internet super server, a lot of people use that. Uh, when a peer connects to an INETD managed port, INETD runs a command in a subprocess to handle the incoming request. The subprocess is given a socket file descriptor as a standard input, standard output, and standard error. That's what you uh, typically get. Once the subprocess is finished, for example, after printing a requested web page to its standard out, it exits, returning the control to INETD. And INETD is not a common part of deployments today, but it still has potential to be useful in production environments. And so here's a little bit of a usage of how you start INETD. So that's basically uh, add that to your rc.conf with sysrc inet underscore enable equals yes, and then do service INETD start to actually start the service at the moment. And then INETD starts. And it contains built-in versions of some services that don't see much use anymore, but were common in the early days of the internet. The INETD conf is, uh, for example, has entries for a number of services, including the internet services it implements. The four simple servers built into INETD on FreeBSD are the Echo RFC 862. We don't have to remember these. Uh, the Echo server or the Echo protocol. An Echo server is just what it sounds like. It returns an identical copy of any traffic it receives, right? Echo may be operated on either TCP or UDP. And uh, please note that Echo over UDP does not authenticate the path and can be used to perform UDP amplification attacks. So careful uh, and care should be taken that Echo on UDP is not made available on the public internet yeah. because people Basically, still scan for these. I can spoof the from address on a UDP packet and send it to your Echo server and mm. send you a large message and you will then send that same large message out to the address I faked uh, as my address. Uh -huh. And so you actually, I send to you and you send to someone else and you're, now you're attacking them. Um, Echo, because it's sending exactly the same message, doesn't really have much of an amplification, but you know, the same thing can happen with like ChargeN where you know, you're just gonna send a stream of packets at them or something. Uh, and there's a lot of stuff you could do that would be bad. So yeah, uh, definitely be careful, especially with UDP, but uh, it can be really interesting to think about what you can do with uh, some bits of this. Then there's discard, which is basically uh, discarding. Uh, it's, it's the original dev null as a service. <laughs> exactly, right? It's on the internet and everyone can paste their stuff into it and definitely not get it back. Um, all traffic sent to the server is simply discarded. That's RFC 863. Then there's a bit more useful. That's RFC 864 here. Chart gen, chart character generator protocol. For TCP connections, the chart gen generator or this chart gen server sends those random characters to any peer that connects. For UDP, it sends a datagram containing random characters for any datagram it receives. Like echo, chargon over UDP can be abused to perform amplification attacks. Again, don't do this and should never be exposed on the public internet. Then there's daytime, RFC 867. The daytime server returns the ASCII character string of the current date and time in an unspecified format. Then there's the time protocol. So remember, daytime versus time protocol, RFC 868. The time server returns to the client a four-byte value representing the number of seconds since midnight, January 1st, 1900. Don't uh, mistake this for the Unix uh, timestamp. This is 1900, not 1970. And uh, this time we'll roll over in 2038. So, oops, I'm still around there, so hopefully. <laughs> I don't have to fix this. Uh, anyway, the internal services are good to test your configuration to verify that INET is working and before using INET to act as a socket activator for other traffic. And uh, then he walks us a little bit through the config file and what kind of services you could also activate. And um, the uh, section here on using external services to INET external services are any other process that it might launch. INETDConf also contains examples of how to launch common services, including FTP, SSHD, Telnet, D, uh, Telnet and FingerD. So uh, you think, why is this useful? Well, there are ways to use this 
um, uh, you had the example earlier before we started the uh, the show to let jails um, not all run their own SSH daemon. Right, right? right. Basically, if you have a lot of jails, you maybe don't need you know four daemons in each jail running all the time. You could have just inetd running and only start the daemons as a connection actually came in, which could reduce you know the resting memory footprint of a machine running a very large number of jails. Yeah, and so give the article a good read and then figure out if you have a use for INET even today. All right, time for the news roundup in this episode. Uh, Alan gives us the reason Unix has the ArcV vector or the array uh, issue and API. Yeah, so this is a, another great post by our friend Chris Seibelman. And he says, famously, Unix passes arguments to programs in the argv array. And the first element of that array is the name of the program being run, the zeroth element, since the array indexes always start from zero. Recently, a whole bunch of people have found, uh, found out that argv doesn't even have to be there uh, because of CVE 2021-4034, uh, which is one where that being null can cause all kinds of problems. Uh, one thing you could reasonably ask in the wake of this security issue is why this is even the case. Why doesn't Unix force argv0 to always have a value? Does Unix even uh, have some deep reason why this API is the way it is? The unsatisfying answer is that argv0 API exists because it's easy. Well, almost certainly. Uh, like a great many things in Unix, it's not necessarily a good idea, but once you decide that on one hand, the shell and other programs that run other programs should pass the argument array to the kernel. And on the other hand, a program should be able to get its own name, or at least the name it's being run under, putting the program uh, name as argv0 and making the program invoking exec supply it as a simple approach. Um, the kernel simply copies a few C arrays of strings into the new program's memory space. It doesn't have to compose together some kernel information, you know, the program being run, and some user level information, the argument list and the environment and so on, or provide an additional API to provide the program's name. Uh, you know, one of the great examples of this is a lot of tools where there are different commands for it uh, are often the same C code uh, compiled and then hard linked. So for example, the MD5 command and the SHA-256 command and the SHA-512 command on BSD are all the same utility. And it just looks at which name you use to invoke it to decide which algorithm to hash the content with. Uh, and so they depend on being able to tell the name of the program you started it with because it's the same binary installed as a bunch of different things. I guess an even better example of that is the rescue binary on FreeBSD, which is something like 80 command line utilities all compiled into one giant binary uh, that's all statically linked and works even when your system is broken. Anyway, back to the article. Um, and then once you could manipulate the name that program would run under, people took advantage of this as an API. For example, the traditional way that a Unix shell knew uh, it was being run as a login shell uh, and should source the .profile file was that the argv argument started with a dash. All of this was a user level convention that the kernel didn't have to get involved with. It was purely between login and the shell and didn't involve the kernel. Resix Unix uh, was a small and simple system, which often took the easy approach, both in implementation and often in APIs. Many of the APIs are there not necessarily because they were great, but because that was simple and easy. And some of them wound up with problems over time. One example was Erno, which is now quite complicated behind the scenes. So while there are certainly good things you can say about the Unix argv API, those same things are probably not the reasons it exists in this form. The most likely reason it exists is that it was simple, easy way to get that combination of features with little effort and little kernel code. The kernel API is not really the API that C program C either. C program C, that's funny. Um, but the core elements are more or less the same. This is not to say that we should keep the full details in the argv API today. My personal view is that argv0 should always exist because the whole argv API is partially implemented at user level uh, in early program startup. This wouldn't actually take any kernel changes. 
on a modern Unix system, you could make the dynamic loader look for argc uh, if the arg count is zero uh, and pass main a tiny one element argv with an empty string as the program name. This wouldn't necessarily protect programs written in languages that have their own runtimes like Go, but you could uh, do so much. You, know, you can only do so much in the easy way. And as a postscript, he says, the use of argv zero for the name of a program goes back at least as far as uh, Unix v3's exec call. I didn't think we have man pages for v2 or v1. If we do, uh, they're not over on twos or the T-U-H-S, the Unix uh, Heritage Society. And I'm not energetic enough to dig through their shell source code uh, if we have that to see if it's there. Uh, see? All these little bits and details, everyone, all the programmers, all the C programmers, argv, it's like when we teach this in the university to the freshmen, it's kind of like, yeah, you have to kind of take this as it is. We can't explain it too much because that would overwhelm you at the beginning. And this is now the explanation here. Um, well, yeah, definitely good to know. Next up is retro computing can be more than games. Uh, Rubenert writes in his blog, about this and he says that as much as i love all the new retro computing youtube channels and bloggers that are rediscovering all this fun old tech the focus is nearly always on games even people who repair or tinker with hardware see games as the end product uh yeah right make it run doom and every or quake yeah, yeah. that's i, I built a retro computer because i want to play the game that i played when i was a kid and you know on a modern computer it'll either run too fast or it's not compatible you know, my favorite game yeah. won't work on Windows 10 because the color is only 16-bit and there's no easy way on Windows 10 to support that they just forced all the colors to be like 24 or 32-bit. Um, yeah, that's a shame. And then there's, there's some, apparently, some hacks you can do to the DirectX APIs or something. Uh, at the moment, I just have a Windows 7 box with enough hacks to be able to play uh, Dangerous Waters. No. <laughs> yeah, so I mean these these are Yeah, these are ga games that we 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 love to play when we were young. Well, maybe yesterday. Um, so yeah, I guess <laughs> why not try know, to preserve the them? first real game I had on a PC was Tie Fighter for DOS. Oh, I feel like nice! I could get back into that a little bit someday. Have you also played the X Wing? No, like the other side uh, didn't have that and. Yeah, TIE Fighter was definitely better in the technology and the stuff you could do. Right, well, it's, you know, and as soon as I got a bit older, I was more of a Trekkie and wasn't so much into Star Wars. <laughs> yeah, but it's, that, was the, that, that was a nice game I played through, I think, with the gamepad and all that. Uh, uh, I had an actual hours. joystick that plugged into, ah, the, cool. plugged into my sound card. Okay, back to the show. <laughs> we should definitely do a retro gaming episode. Um so yeah, he, um, Ruben writes, uh, people forget that the entire marketing message behind the original Commodore VIC-20 and later machines were that they were computers that could play games rather than a game console. Advertisements claiming the device had full typewriter style keyboards weren't just a subtle dig at the Atari 2600 for the Sinclair. They were all out, they were an all out assault. They weren't saying their machines were more capable. They were saying you were too. Uh, this is why uh, he loves the Commodore kit in 2022. It was an empowering message that still resonates with him today. Other companies will tout their developer communities, but modern console makers aren't selling you a device with an interpreter and instructions on how to build software yourself. He loves his little Switch Lite and his iPad, but they'll never tickle him in the same way. CD-ROMs are another interesting case. While they were used to distribute immersive and complicated games by the turn of the millennium, their introductions in the 1980s was seen more narrowly as a way to store and distribute vast stores of information. This was used to mercifully distribute the likes of Office that previously required dozens of floppy disks. Yeah, yeah I remember the... on my 486, I installed the beta of Windows 95 off, I think it was like 32 floppy disks. And luckily, the next computer, I got it on CD. Like, I had a CD-ROM drive. It was just a copy of Windows that I got because it was a beta or whatever from my cousin was on floppy disks. And that was just a lot of, you know, shuffling floppies to go through all 32 disks to install. Oh, everything. yeah, for sure. And hoping that the last disk didn't have any data errors on it. Or ah, dreaded. <laughs> so, um, yeah, 
then the market introduced a segment not seen before or since, the multimedia CD-ROM. Before more ubiquitous and fast internet access, these discs gave home computer access to a half a gigabyte of text, sounds, music, animations, and videos. It's hard to overstate just how cool this was. A few inventions in his childhood made him feel like he was giving it, uh, was living in the future, and this was one of them. I remember the like Encarta or something, whichever, <laughs> that whichever yes. encyclopedia that Microsoft owned. And my school had a copy, exactly. and there was like a speaker that sat in the second five and a quarter inch bay of this desktop computer in the library. And so, and, mm. and yeah, you could like have some parts of the encyclopedia would just be read aloud to you or like, like if you were looking up, I don't know, a, new, a musical instrument or something that have an example of what it sounded like. And it would play something. Yeah. yeah. Oh yes. And we're doing research and, you know, mostly pretending to be research to watch whatever cool stuff you could get off these multimedia things. And then thinking back in this, like, that would be like 240 by 100 and something pixel video, which looked, you know, reasonable as like a, a third of the screen on your 640 by 480 monitor or whatever. <laughs> and then I remember, I mean, it's just today, if you look at these with HD and 4K monitors, and it's like, wow, it's moving, it's animation. Well, I, it's I like... remember the clever trick um, <laughs> Command and Conquer did in some of theirs was when they had the full motion video, like every other line of the video was actually just black. Yeah, uh, and so they yeah. they actually had a lower res video, and they just kind of stretched on the screen by inserting the blank lines, so that the video was lower resolution. But they had basically done the lowering the resolution by just deleting every other line, so that it had a weird aspect mm. ratio, basically of the actual video. But that when they reconstructed it on your screen and just skipped updating every other line, uh, your computer could manage to decode the video fast enough, just barely. Yeah. And then you could browse the CD and found the AVI original files. And then you could play them in the Microsoft Media Player. What's it called? And ah, uh, great. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah, he goes into the encyclopedias and atlases. Uh, he grew up reading those, so having access to a third, a thirty-volume set of books on a single shiny disc was a dream come true. Many afternoons after school were spent reading about random topics on World Book, Bookshelf, and in Carter while telling friends I was gaming. <laughs> so, which leads us back to retro computing. Uh, he loves these discs for their ROM part. The web is constantly evolving and expanding medium, but CD-ROMs are snapshots in time. If I want to see what the world was like in 1996, I can fire up DK's multimedia reference atlas and cruise around. All the things like quotations and almanacs are evergreen, but it's always question, uh, always interesting to see how they're presented in that context of time. They're also interesting for how they're presented. Microsoft was up to all manner of shenanigans at the time, but their Microsoft home titles were consistently above average. DK's eyewitnesses, guides, and encyclopedias were the most polished and fun. IBM's World Book almost felt like you were using a web browser. Never, never had that. Um, and Bookshelf's angle of being bundled with an office suit was interesting. Even now, if oh, if now I just read it standalone. I've been told by more than a few people that being interested in this stuff is boring. I might need to write more. Oh, yes, please do. Then we'll be happy to cover this here. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, I've looked at, you know, especially when I was a bit younger, looking at other developers who wanted to work on like old computers. And it's like, why? They're just slower and worse. Um, hmm. But, you know, for some of it, it's like, well, you can actually understand all of it because it's not as advanced uh, and it can be a bit more interesting or, yeah. you know, you have memories of it and so on. But we could open it and look inside and exchange the parts. Well, I can do that with my new computers, but I, I know. Yeah, but not with the tablets. Well, yes, I, <laughs> I, I mostly have desktops, not laptops and tablets yeah. and so on. But, um, you know, at the same time, calling, remembering all this old stuff does always make you feel a little nostalgic and it gets worse even every year because we get older and technology stayed at the same time it's not growing with us <laughs> but yeah that's how it is right but like at the same time, i was thinking of like the things i thought were cool when i was learning programming too like you know my first QBasic program that would just like hi what's your name and then prompt you for some text and then ah uh, uh, yes stuff like that and it's Classic. like i don't think you would amuse yeah i don't think you would inspire the same curiosity in younger kids nowadays trying to do just a console app like that um, mm, yeah probably so, not but they want graphics uh well we have unix it keeps evolving and it's still old so that's probably a good uh, compromise here by the way you should read section 8 of the unix users manual 
the register tells us. Yeah, and see the importance of open and accessible operations. So systems approach. If, like me, you were a computer science graduate student who cut their teeth on Berkeley Unix, uh, complete with the first open source implementation of TCP IP, you know section 8 is the cryptic system maintenance command section of the U Unix user's manual. Uh, it was obvious to me that this uh, concluding section warranted a closer look because the introduction warned information in this section is not of great interest to most users. <laughs> Judging by my taste in research problems over the years, uh, reading section eight turned out to be a pretty good investment. But before getting to section eight, we first learn about the rest of Unix, where you discover how empowering it is to be able to build new internet applications. Anyone interested in how targeted investment in open source software coupled with affordable hardware can spur innovation should study the role of the Berkeley Software Distribution, or BSD, in the success of the internet. It's easy to approach the internet as we know it today uh, as being inevitable, sorry, inevitable. But at the time BSD Unix happened, it was not clear at all that the incumbent telcos could be disrupted. We've commented on the power of APIs many times, but the impact of the sockets API, which is part of section two, on enabling innovation on top of the internet cannot be overstated. With that stable fixed point in the architecture, a thousand flowers bloomed. And we have thankfully moved well beyond the telco uh, vision of B-ISDN. Can you imagine if we still only had like 64K of internet connectivity speed? Oh, wow. <laughs> How different everything would be. You would definitely think about twice where you surf and how long it would take to load the page. Wow, I think more pages would be pretty much plain text. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the pictures. Oh, it's loading so long, line by line. Yeah. It's like, what's this? <laughs> you know, even if the JavaScript library is only 64K, that's a whole second I waited for some JavaScript that I didn't want. That's significant. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, section eight was the second half of the story. In addition to describing how to shut down and boot a system, it defined the process of managing long-running daemon processes, the Unix equivalent of today's microservices. If you had responsibility for configuring and managing system services on your department server, which came with super user privileges, you needed not only to know how to program Unix, but you needed to understand the ins and outs of operating a Unix machine. As a grad student, the lessons I learned while being responsible for our SendMail server on a live multi-user system were immeasurable. Every mistake instantly sent the faculty into the hallway looking for the responsible idiot. In my defense, this was at a time when email addresses contained percent signs and exclamation mark in addition to the at, uh, and their precedence was not well defined. <laughs> BSD also provided me with early lessons in the power of having many eyeballs on the lookout for security vulnerabilities. Looking at the source code for SendMail, for example, revealed a backdoor whereby one could tell it to port 25, type the magic wizard command, and fork a root shell. So I made my counterparts at Berkeley and other universities aware of the vulnerability by doing exactly that. <laughs> Which is to say, <laughs> tell it to their, their mail servers and type wizard. Others probably did this too, but it was a different time and the lessons didn't initially take hold. With debugging convenience and a naive sense of community trumping security, uh, the backdoor remained open by default in SendMail until the Morris worm used it as one of the attack vectors a couple of years later. Gaining this sort of practical experience is obviously valuable if your plan is to become a system administrator. But as long, uh, it has long been my experience that an opportunity to manage systems that deliver services to actual users is a great source of system research problems as well as fertile ground for platform innovations. My PhD dissertation, born out of frustration with SendMail, turned out to be on naming and addressing. Later, real-world experience running a CDN with Planet Lab generated a sequence of systems papers, including one for CACM in uh, 2007. And most recently, our experience operating an edge cloud has led to an appreciation of the state management problem inherent in DevOps. And my experience is far from unique. Many of the cloud tools we take for granted today, like Kubernetes, uh, started as someone's response to an operational point of pain. This all leads me to believe that an open operations platform, as documented in Section 8, is just as important as an open programming platform, like the APIs documented in Section 2, uh, as far as democratizing innovation. 
you know, would BSD Unix have had the same impact in the 80s and 90s if the University Computer Center had supported it rather than the computer science department letting its grad students take ownership of the operations problems? We can ask a similar question today. The big value of being able to create new cloud applications is abundantly clear, but there is also value in having open access to tools used to manage and operate the cloud rather than delegating the latter to a commercial cloud provider. To me, the answer is clearly yes. It comes down to the virtuous cycle of solutions being enabled by platforms on the one hand and platforms being reshaped with the experience of those who are using them on the other hand. Stable platforms with well-defined APIs surely allow a thousand flowers to bloom, but eventually disruptive refactoring of these platforms is what leads to the next round of innovation. Software-defined networking is a famous example of disruptive refactoring, but it only works if we have sufficiently sophisticated tooling to assemble all the components into a coherent and manageable system. Orchestration and lifecycle management have become a dominant operational issues because many smaller parts have been assembled and these individual parts are expected to change more frequently. They are essentially part of what we might call the cloud OS. Certainly not everyone who writes programs, whether it's running on a personal server or in the cloud, also needs to know how to keep that program running 24 seven. But from the perspective of empowering more people to participate in the creation of new systems, the operations platform needs to be kept open and accessible to anyone who wants to invest time in it. Fortunately, there are a plethora of open source components available today that can be used to operate uh, and lifecycle manage a cloud. And they say they've documented a roadmap for using the edge cloud operations as systems approach, uh, which is a kind of section eight man page for the cloud. We're hoping that there are still a few people who are just crazy enough to give it a try. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right, let's jump into our Beastie Bits this week. We have found the uh, or a new reckless guide to OpenBSD. Uh, there's a couple of those, um, or it has parts, and the uh, Undeadly Org website lets us know in the Puffyism for Fun and uh, Fun department. We've just published the first part of a new 10-part series called A Reckless Guide to OpenBSD. The series covers all sort of things from configuring DPB through hacking the frame buffer console code, compiling a custom kernel, and lots of other stuff in between. Uh, so that's the link here. Uh, exoticsilicon.com slash j slash reckless underscore guide underscore to underscore OpenBSD. The whole series was written by Jay Eptinksa, hopefully, uh, here at Exotic Silicon, and we're publishing it in weekly installments. And uh, they also say we're already looking forward to the upcoming installments. Thanks to Jay and Crystal for writing and publishing this. Yeah, a 10-part series on interesting things you can do with OpenBSD. Sounds good to me. Mm -hmm. Then there's a GhostBSD online meetup we have uh, been notified about, hopefully in time. Yes, that's Friday, March 18th, 1900 EST on Jitsi. Uh, link is in our show notes, of course. And the meetup is open for discussions relating to GhostBSD, OpenZFS, FreeBSD, with a period of questions and answers. Everyone can suggest a subject of discussion. Yeah, and I guess that makes me remember that uh, Tuesday, March 8th, uh, will be the Hambug meeting. Uh, that's at 6.30 Eastern. Mm -hmm. Yeah, good to know as well. So if you have a meetup or some other kind of online regular BSD thing, let us know well in advance, because again, we're re recording these episodes not every week. So it might be that um, if you send it too late, we can't publish on the show anymore because it's already over yeah so we need pretty close to a month ahead of time which i understand is kind of a lot but uh that will make sure that we can get it uh up into the show and it actually ships out in time for people to be aware of your meeting uh and we're not you know recording it the day before the meeting and the episode won't go out for you know another week or something and mess everybody up <laughs> Okay, then there's a tweet uh, from HardenBSD about uh, 12 stable support being dropped in May 2022. That's a short info uh, that on May 1st, uh, they will delegate support of the 12 stable branch to the wider HardenBSD community. Uh, they will stop providing binary updates, nightly builds, and routine package builds at that time. And they encourage everyone to enjoy 13 stable going forward. So that's important if you're still on the 12, -er, uh, 12 <laughs> release. And... Uh, maybe consider updating. 
then the Dragonfly BSD Digest lets us know about option options for get opt. What is that about? So we can find that on Dragonfly Digest. Yeah, so they say, uh, Justin says, I realize my title is a bit like Buffalo, 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 but it makes sense. Get opt now has, uh, on Dragonfly BSD, now has a double colon option to indicate an optional argument. I link uh, to it because I see, I like seeing the length of the trip to Dragonfly BSD. Uh, it started as a GNU option and showed up in NetBSD and then got brought over to FreeBSD and now it's coming up into Dragonfly BSD. Although it's been in FreeBSD for a very long time. Um, so basically, normally you have, uh, when you when you do a get up string, you have just the letter means that there's a flag like, you know, dash V and it's just, there's no arguments. Uh, or a flag followed by a colon, so V colon would be V and then you're expected to give a, a level of verbosity like, some string or whatever. Uh, optional arguments are kind of complicated. Um, so because you'd normally like, uh, so an optional argument basically can be provided by itself with no argument or with an argument. So if you think of dash V as a flag that never has an argument and something like dash F for the file name that always has an argument, if you make this new argument that is now optional, um, if it has no argument after it, we just take it as a, a single flag and any arguments that come later are file names that, you know, get fed into like gzip or whatever, right? Where you can provide a list of things uh, or like ls, right? If you have ls and then the list of file names, you list those file names. But if you do ls-l, which is a single flag and a list of file names, then it knows that it's that. But with an optional flag, if you did it the normal way where you could just have, you know, ls-some flag that needs an argument, then we know any argument that comes after that flag belongs to that flag. But if it's optional, there's no way to tell if that argument is belonging to that flag or if it's just one of the file names you're trying to ls. Um, so optional arguments have no space. So it'd be like dash C, the argument with no space. They're all smushed together. Whereas normally, if you have uh, optionless arguments, you can put a bunch of them together, right? Like you can do dash RV when you're doing a, a RM and it will recurse through all the things and be verbose and print out each file it's deleting. You don't have to do dash R space dash V. You can smush them together. But with optional mm. arguments, you have the flag and then everything that comes after that flag is now the argument to that flag, not other flags. It's very confusing. Mm. Uh, so while I can see why it was useful, um, and I see there's no other easy way to do it. It is also just terribly, terribly confusing, um, to how you do the optional arguments and you're like, why would they do it that way? And then you think about it some and you can't think of any other way to do it. And it's like, yeah, okay. But, uh, anyway, nice to see Dragonfly BSD finally get that support. Mm -hmm. PFSense plus version 2201 and PFSense CE versions 260 are now available. And the highlights uh, from their announcement have that numerous changes to IPsec for stability and performance were made. Uh, the highlights, there are some um, subsections. Well, I think the biggest one is ZFS is now the default file system Ooh, uh, cool. for all installations where yeah. possible. I think it, you know, there's a couple of uh, hardware platforms where that doesn't make sense, but. Yeah. And they have a new ZFS status dashboard widget in PFSense Plus only. So that's uh, for the people who uh, are on the plus side of things. The disk widgets to replace the disk usage list in the system information widget. Yeah, that has to probably also be adjusted to the ZFS. Auto config backup no longer makes pages wait for load during the backup process. Uh, the default password hash format in the user manager has been changed from bcrypt to SHA-512. Improvements to the captive portal lockout page and process as well as RAM disks have been converted to tempfs. And last but not least, our favorite backup tool and sponsor for a number of years now, Tarsnap, got a new version. 1.040 is out. And uh, Colin lets us know that, well, this new version brings several improvements compared to Tarsnap 1039. Uh, for example, Tarsnap now accepts a resume extract option to skip extracting files whose file size and uh, modification time match the existing files on disk. So if you have to interrupt or restore, uh, you can resume where you left off instead of having to re-extract everything. 
mm. which you know when you're downloading it from the cloud could actually save a lot of time yeah and bandwidth uh tarsnap also accepts now the dash dash progress dash byte size which prints a progress message after each size bytes are processed up to once per file and this can also be disabled with dash dash no progress bytes it also accepts now a passphrase method uh, arc option, similar to Alan explains it, uh, or just had explained. Uh, passphrase dev TTY standard in, standard in once, TTY once, as well as uh, environmental var name or file file name. Uh, it also accepts a dump config option to print a command line and all non-blank lines read from config files. Useful for debugging. Uh, Tarsnap now exits with an error if there are unused command line arguments. Or another thing is an improved performance. We always love to read that uh, on some x86, AMD64, and ARM64 systems by using cryptographic instruction set extensions. And when uh, Tarsnap gets sent a sick info or sick user, uh, Tarsnap now prints the number of files and the number of uncompressed bytes processed in addition to the previous output. Oh, cool. And a Z-shell completion file can be installed uh, with configure dash dash with Z-shell completion equals in the directory. As usual, also lots of minor bug fixes, harmless bug fixes, and code cleanups to definitely check out the new version of Tarsnap and backup as always. Okay, our feedback and questions section for this week has a couple of people writing in. And how did they do that? Well, they sent a message to feedback at bsdnow.tv. And you should too, if you have a similar question, feedback about any kind of part of the show or other shows and uh, we try to help or put it here in this section of the episode um, the first one is Karst uh, about replacing discs so he writes or they write thanks for the great show I listen to it in reverse order and hopefully end up someday in episode one. Oh, excellent that's good uh, that's a good strategy but it might take a while we keep uh, putting out episodes <laughs> you won't be bored Okay, so my question is about storage. I run a ZFS-based NAS with a mirror pool of two 4TB disks. I want to replace them with two 8TB disks and use the 4TB ones in a machine built from spare parts for application purposes. Is it possible to stripe the 4TB ones to an 8TB storage provider and buy a third 8TB disk and use them as a mirror of two 8TB storage providers? So rather than using the 4TB drives, you're wanting to make a fake eight terabyte drive out of the two four terabytes and then mirror that with some other eight terabyte drives. Um, yes, that is possible. I really don't recommend it, but yes, you can do that. Uh, so I guess you would use the G stripe command to turn those two four terabyte drives into one virtual eight terabyte drive and then mirror that with a real eight terabyte drive. Uh, and then as the second set of mirrors, your your two True. new eight terabyte drives. Of course, if you're doing that, you don't have your two old four terabyte drives to to do the second machine for replication purposes. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of unusual. So it's doable, um, but possible. You know, if either one of the four terabyte drives dies, you're they're both useless. So you have to resilver everything anyway. Um, and you know, I don't really recommend it, but yes, you can do that. Uh, but you have to create the, the virtual 8-terabyte drive out of the two 4-terabyte drives um, with uh, the geom tooling outside of ZFS. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that's the g-stripe command uh, will allow you to make a, a new virtual device that is basically striping across those two drives. Uh, the performance might also be a bit weird since ZFS assumes it's all one hard drive uh, and it's going to try to treat it that way and g-stripe is going to end up splitting the work between the two drives and it's it's suboptimal but uh it is doable mm -hmm. okay uh -huh. so the answer is yes of That's course you can shoot your own off. <laughs> yeah yeah yes, as long as you're don't blame us going to, the... into it aware uh -huh. of the fact that it's not a great idea then of course you know uh unix doesn't stop you doing something stupid because that would also stop you doing something clever this is not clever, but yes, you can. But do it. it's up to you. <laughs> okay, then next we have the home about another ZFS question, uh, especially about booting. So that goes one of my FreeBSD servers boot from ZFS. Uh, boot pool from it was created ages ago and missing lots of ZFS features introduced after it was created. 
I'm afraid to upgrade it because I'm not sure what ZFS features are supported by FreeBSD's bootloader. I do not want to drive the server unbootable. Unfortunately, I also can't find any documentation about what ZFS features are supported by the bootloader. Can I use set standard compression? Is pools uh, with the space map version 2 or DRAID supported and so on? Can you please point me where I can find such information aside from digging through the source code? And one more question, what needs to or what needs to be readable by the bootloader? Only slash boot? Okay, so uh, what is supported by our bootloader? Uh, sadly, I think the answer is the source code, but luckily there's literally just a list of the ZFS feature flags in one of the files that you'll be able to just grep for. Uh, so if you just grep for the feature at string um, for a specific feature, there's basically an array of the ones that are supported in the bootloader source code. That really, I suppose, should be in one of the man pages somewhere. And if it's not already, uh, somebody should do that. Uh, Z standard compression is supported on the newest versions of our bootloader. I do not think that includes 13.0, but uh, it should include 13.1 when it comes out. I'm not 100% sure, though. I don't know if Tumas has got to backporting that. And if not, somebody should poke him and make sure that it gets done. Um, as far as there's also a feature in newer versions of OpenZFS. So again, that's not in 13.0. Uh, it's only available, I think, in 2.1 or maybe even after that. When you're doing zpool create, there's now uh, a flag you can do dash O compat equals, and you can specify you can tell ZFS, make this pool compatible with, you know, FreeBSD 12 or FreeBSD 13.0 or whatever, or whatever the low, the, the standard for open ZFS was in 2020. Uh, there's a, basically a list of supported uh, aliases there where you can create a pool that you know will be compatible with a specific version. Uh, and that takes care of figuring out which flag should be on and off and you don't have to guess individually. Uh, so that might be great. Uh, so I think SpaceMap V2 is supported by the bootloader. I don't think booting from DRAID is supported. DRAID is really meant for when you have very large numbers of drives. And so normally you would boot from like a mirror of SSDs or something, not uh, from a pool with many, many tens or hundreds of disks. Okay. Uh, and then what needs to be readable by the bootloader? In general, the bootstrap needs to be able to read slash boot. Same for the loader. And then that's probably about it. Um, usually that's all just part of the slash file system. Like slash boot isn't normally a separate data set in ZFS. Um, so in general, for example, you can use Z standard compression and encryption with a bootloader that uh, is new enough to know what they are, but not new enough to support them. As long as you don't compress or encrypt the root, the, the actual boot environment file system with them. Uh, so like you can Z-Standard compress and encrypt your home directory, uh, but as long as the parts required to boot aren't encrypted or compressed, uh, then you can do that, I think, uh, with 13.0 and later. Encryption is currently not supported by the bootloader at all, but again, uh, as long as the file systems the bootloader needs to read are not encrypted, uh, it will still work even if you're using encryption on other data sets. Mm -hmm. Okay, got it. Makes sense. All right. Uh, thank you for your questions. Uh, future questions should always be redirected to feedback at bsdnow.tv. Could also be, well, feedback. Um, ideas, topics we should cover, any, any stories you found on the webs uh, or written yourself. Um, so thank you for listening. Thank you.